Today on the show, we're talking about financial thinking traps. Welcome to Simple Money Solutions Podcast, your path to financial independence through deliberate lifestyle choices. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm joined with Trevor. Thank you so much for being here with us today as we talk about financial thinking traps. Yeah, so the, the, to- the topic we're really going to dial into is called cognitive biases. And this is where your brain tries to become efficient by taking preconceived notions and, and applying it to your decision making. And it's part of the subconscious mind. And it can work against us quite often. So we kind of have some examples here from an article by Kristen Wong. It's from twocents.lifehacker.com. And it's called The Cognitive Biases That Lead to Bad bad Money Decisions. It'll be in the show notes for your reference as well. But we're going to kind of go over some of the the cognitive biases we probably don't realize we are we're we're making every every day with our decisions so the first one here is sunk cost fallacy and uh this one kind of relates to uh, she leads off by saying that if you've ever been in a bad relationship that's lasted way too long you've probably dealt with the sunk cost fallacy the idea so a sunk cost is a cost that cannot be recovered so if you if you've spent money on a car repair so you've had something on your car repaired and then you decide, you know what, this car is just too old. Uh, I should just get rid of it. Well, the fact that you you just put a new starter motor on it or a new battery in it or, or something that you can't take away from it, that, that often will af- impact your decision to keep that car because I just spent, you know, $1,500 repairing it. I'm not going to get rid of it now, even though, you know, something greater has gone wrong with it and it turns out this thing's a money pit. So the sunk cost fallacy, it, it can it can hamstring you into making decisions that just don't make sense if you were to stand back and look at it from 2,000 feet. So one example that is thrown into this article is uh, I drove all the way to Best Buy and they didn't have the phone case I wanted, but I bought one I didn't really like, then replaced it a few weeks later just because they were at Best Buy. You know, if you see something in a flyer, in a sale, and you go to the store and they, they don't have any, a lot of times that's by design. They don't have any in stocks, and, and you'll buy something else at maybe a full price. So they kind of have you. Uh, a lot of times, being I've always had used cars, so I brought, I gave the example of a used car. So a lot of times it, it's uh, it's in repairing older cars that, that, I, that I've come into that trap. And my, but my wife's had this brilliant way of looking at it in that just say – in your world, a car payment on a brand new car is, say, $500. So if I spend $500 on repairing this old car, it only has to last me 30 days. You know, and then after 30 days, I, I, can, I can rid myself of the, the, the sunk cost I put into that repair. And I, at that point, I could choose, okay, I'm going to get rid of this car and get a new one. So that is a way I get past that. So I do have the sunk cost fallacy. It lasts 30 days if the repair was $500. If it was $1,000, I'd want the car to last me at least 60 days. And at that point, I, I would be okay walking away from it. It's not a sunk cost anymore. So you kind of put, you, so you, you've equated $500 to 30 days. Yeah, because I figured that's what I, not that I would ever buy a new car, but if I bought a new car, the car payment would probably be around $500. That's a great way to visualize kind of a used car and anything kind of like that because whenever it kind of puts parameters around it and, and, and you, then you don't fall victim to this fallacy. And you see, if you, a lot of times this doesn't tend to happen with a house because uh, your house tends to go up in value. And so people view, you know, putting in a new air conditioner as an investment. 
right? So they, they, they always say, well, when I sell this house, I'll get that back. Whereas with a car, it just keeps going down in value. So no matter what you put into it, it's worth less tomorrow than it was today. I also do want to kind of draw another conclusion with this uh, particular fallacy and another kind of, um, besides kind of the dollar amount you invested into something, another consideration here is time. So the amount of time that you spent driving to Best Buy in that one example. Um, another one is the, the amount of time you spent looking for a coat on Amazon and you didn't end up finding the coat, but you felt like you had to buy something to justify your time. That's kind of another example of this in the article. That that is true. That the the figure, better yet, all the you know, just say Best Buy is an hour away. So the gas and time you spent to get to Best Buy that and and to leave there with nothing, empty-handed, seems like such a waste. And in both these examples, they're you kind of I think this the the decision making is maybe fueled by a frustration, uh, by a letdown, by by something not working in your favor true and you're trying to bring yourself out of that funk right you're trying to bring yourself back to a happy place right you're very disappointed and sad that the thing you wanted isn't there so i'll buy something just just to you know satisfy that that empty feeling and i mean the the trigger statement within this article that probably led you to making that decision was i've gotten this far i might as well insert bad decision here so (laughs) I mean, if, if that's ever kind of a thought, I've gotten this far, I might as well blank, then then, then maybe you are falling victim to this fallacy. You know, an, another one I've seen is where people, I've been with people where you, you decide we're going to go out for dinner to our favorite restaurant. You go there and it's lined up and it's an hour wait for a table. And so you decide, well, we'll go eat somewhere else. And it's never going to live up to the 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 meal you you were you thought you were going to have at this your favorite restaurant and you end up going to a, your your second choice and your the thing is you're going to be disappointed plus you're going to spend money so that but the the sunk cost fallacy is you 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 drove all this way to go out for dinner and you found out it's an hour wait for a table so it, uh, that's happened to me i guess before or or you're with a like maybe there's someone in your group who's who's a, who is just very determined so you, and then you start waiting and then, the, but then you've already waited for half an hour. So you just keep waiting and then you're waiting for an hour in total. Yeah. And so, so you think, now we've waited this long. Do we walk out? Do we walk away now or do we keep waiting? So I think it's just important for our listeners to know, you know, where your sunk cost fallacy weaknesses are. It might be with car repairs. It might be with uh, entertainment. It, it, you know, it might be with you know sales. Just just know what yours are. Everybody has different ones, and know the ones that 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 affect you the most. So, the final example that I kind of want to throw in here, and it's from this article, and the author here talks about how we stick with our post secondary degree because we're already two years through it, three years through it, and I know for me, when I was uh, in university, I I absolutely love my program, but I mean. Times get tough and this sometimes so I think this fallacy can work in your kind of favor and that in third year I was like there's only one year left I might as well keep pushing through not might as well but that was kind of the the thing that pushed me through is that I had already committed so much time money and effort. I I think if you were to interview you know everybody who ever went to post-secondary education by the time the end they're starting to second guess their career you know their 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 chosen path I, I think that's pretty common. Uh, but I think there's there's more value in in finishing in following through because for everyone that started post secondary education, 
there is a, a huge bunch of people that never finished. So I, I think there's something to be, to be said for finishing what you started. Definitely. And I think this fallacy kind of works it works in our favor in times like this when you're up against something challenging. I think even it doesn't even have to be post-secondary. Think anything that's challenging when you start. It could be a project even that you're doing um, in your free time that is still challenging. But I think this fallacy does have its advantages when it's when it's working to keep you going. See, a lot of people, they want to stop when things get hard. And when things get hard, it tends to be when you, you're getting the, the greatest benefit from things. It, it is when... When, when, it, when it becomes challenging, you're actually learning the most. That's where you're right. The sunk cost fallacy, it, it, it works for you. In that case, it, it, it pu- you push through the hard parts and you finish. So Trevor, my last question for you and our listeners is when do you know, when should you cut your losses? When you're kind of in, when, you, when you're in, when you're in a decision making process, when, should, when, when what, what's that point? I'm going to say it depends and it really does. It depends what it is. If you're cutting your losses, is it a long-term impact or short-term? You know, is this going to matter a year from now? Or is this going to matter 30 days from now? So I really think you got to look at your, the idea with the phone case. I mean, that's not going to matter 30 days from now. And it certainly wouldn't matter a year from now. If you cut, if if you were to stop uh, your degree program, that's going to matter uh, probably for the, you know, it's going to have an impact for the rest of your life. So I think you got to really look at it's, it's long-term effect, you know, when to cut your losses. So let's move on to the next um, cognitive bias, and it is choice supportive bias, also known as buyer's remorse when we buy something and then we kind of start feeling the sense of denial. And th- this thing I mean, everybody's had this, right? It, 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 and it, particularly with consumer electronics, is it, it is such a changing landscape. It changes every month. There's a there's a new fascinating product out there replacing and making an older product obsolete. I think, you know, buyer's remorse, it, it can be your friend too, right? If you're afraid of buyer's remorse, you'll be a very cautious buyer. So I, I think you just need to, so here's something a lot of people do. They'll buy something um, at, say, a, a, a brick-and-mortar retail store. They'll come home, and through some internet search, they'll find it online for less, you know, cheaper. This has happened to a lot of people. So then you kind of regret buying this thing. And it might, say it was an impulse purchase because you saw it in a store. You probably knew in the back of your mind you could have got it cheaper online, but you bought it anyway because you, you just wanted it now. So that's where... Buyer's remorse, I mean, if you keep that in the back of your mind or maybe closer to the front that, that you know, this, I could be, I could fall victim to buyer's remorse if I buy this here and now, it, it could be you're not thinking it through. But then, like this article says, you should, you should listen to that thought of, uh, you're, you should listen to your second, second guessing thought because when, when we are victim to buyer's remorse or choice cognitive bias, um, the article says here too, it's the tendency to ignore other views in order to protect the decision you've already made. So the example thrown out here was that, um, she, the author bought a wedding dress she couldn't afford, but she, she eventually returned it, but that was beside the point. The point was that she first tried to initially convince herself that it was a good decision. She said to herself, it's a big, important day. I'll have this dress forever. But, and she didn't want to admit to herself that it was beyond her budget. But I think the person that 
that that ends up with buyer's remorse, they're be, they're better than uh, the the people that didn't, right? They they at least they have the cognitive thought to to think that you know I shouldn't have done this. You know, I completely agree with that. It's that kind of, and and then so so from what you're saying from there that it's up to, it's up to the consumer then to to listen to that that thought of doubt and and maybe trust it. And you know what? A, a lot of retailers now, even on Amazon, you can return anything. I mean, anything in in almost in any condition. And I, I think you know people will buy stuff more on impulse, knowing you know I'll buy these, I'll take it home, I'll look at it. If I don't like it, I'll return it. Or Amazon, you buy almost anything, and if you don't like it, you just put it back in the box, take it to the post office, and th- that problem's out of your life. So I, I think consumers are trying to. Uh, make people pull the trigger and, and then maybe the effort of returning it is greater than keeping it. So I, I think buyer's remorse, if you can, the, the key is it's it, buyer's remorse, obviously it's after you've bought it. But if you can, if you can visualize it, am I going to have buyer's remorse be when I, after buying this item, you know, if there's even a hint that you might, that can be your friend. What if we what if we look a little bit farther about maybe just pure financial decisions? So if we if we do something with our money, or, this is just an example from this article by Kristen. But if we if we decide to make kind of a decision regarding maybe I, that we're not an investing investing podcast, but if we decide to invest it a certain way or decide to do something specific, and we get maybe other people doubting it. How, how how should we go about dealing with that? Well, I think buyer's remorse, it, it doesn't mean new information has been introduced into the uh, situation, right? It, it, nothing, you've learned nothing new. You've just, time has passed and now you're kind of regretting buying this thing. It's not like you learned something new about it because I think that's a whole different thing. So if you invested in, in, a, in a company and, and that company turned out to not perform well and, and, and as it turns out, your, your stock investment didn't do well, uh, that's new information, right? That's the information you didn't have at the time. I don't think you should have remorse for that decision. It, it's when you've you've you, you've made a purchase or a decision, and you just regret it, uh, and no new information has been introduced. That to me is buyer's remorse. So you're saying that the unwillingness to change our mind after making a decision. So you're saying if if you found out this new information and you 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 did not change your stance. So if you found this company is doing bad, but you already made the decision to invest in it and you were committed, if you kind of stuck it out, that would be that would be handling the situation wrong. But if you got information and, and, and then you kind of followed it, that would be kind of maybe going against your cognitive bias. Uh, yeah, I think that's a different uh, cognitive bias though, where you, you get new information, but you continue to believe the old information. So the next bias here is the anchoring bias. And this comes a lot into play. I mean, a lot of these examples revolve around shopping. Um, this one, I guess, as well, just because it's kind of a very, it, this I feel happens a lot when we shop these biases. But this one is when we rely too heavily on the first person for piece of information we're exposed to. So this is kind of a, a one where you kind of, it's all about kind of perspective. So the example here is if you see a a $19 cheeseburger featured on a restaurant menu and you think $19 for a cheeseburger, no way. And then you see a $14 cheeseburger, suddenly the $14 cheeseburger becomes a lot reasonable. 
which seems crazy for a cheeseburger is $14, but I, you see, I can see how it plays with their mind where at least you're not paying $19, which seems like a deal. You know, a place that does this and they're, they're really play with their minds as winners. So they have this, uh, uh, compare at price on, on their clothes. So they'll have a, a sweater for $40 compare at 60. And I think, wow, at least I'm not paying 60. I'm paying 40. Another one that, that does this is Canadian Tire. I was just about to say that. Off, I know, 60% off sales. 70% off sometimes too. I know. And you think, how you know how, how can I not buy this? Even if I don't need it at that price, you know, I'd be crazy not to buy it. And it just, it drives me crazy. And then, you know, we know what makes it worse is the thought of going into Canadian Tire and paying full price for anything. I think I am just being taken here. I need this thing, but I'm paying full price. I can't believe it. Now you take a store like Walmart where they don't have sales. They they have everyday low prices. I connect better with that environment. Or even the opposite. Maybe you can, I know I've gone into some specialty stores where all the prices are, because it's it's a store of handcrafted items. I, some, I connect well with that as well because you you go in the expectation you kind of and and when you look at these flyers it kind of distorts your expectation and and i i think this can really this is maybe the phenomenon that that comes into play when we lose our perspective on situations when it comes to maybe household debt consumer debt um credit cards i mean if you maybe you had four credit cards yesterday but now you're down to two just just anything where your reality becomes distorted well anytime you make an improvement that, that's a good thing, I guess. So, you know, you, if you eliminate a debt, now you only have two debts, you know, uh, that's great. But what, what happens if you if you get okay with just having two debts or, or just say you had three debts, you got rid of two, you're down to one debt, but, you know, you were okay with the idea of two debts. Yeah, but you have to, con- we want to be consciously moving in this in a good direction all the time, not not getting comfortable with a new normal. And, and, and caught in the comparison of one verse versus another. So let's move on to the next one. The next one here, the next cognitive bias in our list is the bandwagon effect. So the bandwagon effect, and I'm sure we've all kind of heard of the uh, the expression before, but it's just essentially where we kind of do something just because that's what people are doing. A lot of times, if everyone's doing it, it must be a good idea. That's that's where a lot of it, it happens. And it, it's who you surround your, yourself with, the people you put in your life. So if you're around a bunch of people that are buying brand new cars, that looks like a really good idea, right? And, and, and you driving a, a really old car seems like a really bad idea. So it, this bandwagoning effect, it, it it's really surrounding yourself with like-minded people. And there's an expression that uh, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So pick those people wisely, right? Because you're, you're going to become the average of those people. So I think the bandwagon effect is really, it's something you can control to a degree. So obviously you can't pick your family and uh, you can't pick your coworkers. And those are two people you spend a lot of time with. But So if, if those are groups of people that, that aren't aligned with your financial goals, you need to be very cognizant of that and, and just don't, you know, don't get on the bandwagon, you know, it's, it's just be, just know that is a, a very risky area of your life. The bandwagon effect can, can be, can you be your undoing because you're surrounded by people who don't share your goals. And, and unfortunately it might be, you can't control those be being surrounded by those people. It's just the nature of, 
of where you are in life. I think the bandwagon effect is is maybe one of the the one of the sources of of kind of where our maybe our collective debt is coming from because one of the examples here is everyone goes into debt to buy a car. That's what people just do. So, I mean, if if one person does that, goes into debt to buy a car, and then and I mean, and again, I, I, we usually do go into debt to buy a car, but I mean, if if we're buying kind of an expensive new car and we're justifying that just because everyone is buying the latest uh, 2018 car, I think that's where it gets dangerous because, and I think too, a collective doing that all the time, every day with every purchase, that's going to, it's going to kind of keep, again, increasing the total consumer debt load. Well, staying with the car thing, I agree with you that that is probably in our society, the biggest bag, bag wag, bandwagoning effect there is. And if you think, if I, if I go back in time, so I, when I was a kid, station wagons were a thing. You know, a lot of people, a lot of families had station wagons. And and I, my my father never had one, but I know he coveted them. So he, he always wished he had one, but he never did. And then when I was coming of age, it was a minivan craze. You know, everyone had family had minivans. And if you didn't have a minivan, it was like, you know, what's wrong with you? You don't have a minivan. And, and then it evolved into SUVs. So, so, and then if, Everybody would have an SUV, you know, and there was, it just made sense. If you had a family, an SUV was a thing to have. And then it was a crossover SUV. And now it's these four-door trucks, you know, these, these club cab trucks. And, and people drive them around like cars. And this, everyone who listens to this knows I have a problem with that. And, and that, that, that is really a bang, bang, bandwagoning effect is, is following the masses in your car purchasing decisions. And then, and then, what about the housing market? I mean, we we all, I'm, most of our listeners, I would say, all of our listeners will are in the are in the situation where you take on a mortgage when you buy a home. But can we get? I think we can get to the the bandwagon effect too if we we say to ourselves, well, we are we're getting a mortgage, we might as well, and we're already getting into debt for this mortgage, we might as well buy as much house as we can. And this is kind of a this the way we maybe look at mortgages. Well, in house, house, houses are kind of in that effect in that if you go into a new subdivision, they tend to only build really large homes. You know, you don't see uh, the uh, smaller bungalows of the 1970s um, being built today because that, that isn't what uh, the masses want. And so it, people buying more house than they need is kind of a bandwagoning effect, right? So be, buying more than you need in, in a house is, is a huge lifestyle expense. And, uh, you know, and we always say cars and houses are, can, can be your financial undoing. And if, if those are, if bandwagoning is a weakness of yours, uh, just know that those two things can really, can really sink you. So to your point there, Trevor, that sometimes it might not even be an option not to get on the bandwagon with when, when you maybe don't decide how, what the subdivision house size is, how do you avoid how do you so if you're conscious of the bandwagon effect how do you how do you go against the again bandwagon of society when you want to make these smart financial decisions well you know so with cars you know just buy a used and and you'll be buying what what the masses wanted before right so if you're buying used you'll be buying a a small crossover SUV instead of a full-size four-door pickup truck if because that's what the used market has is what all the the masses just got rid of. And if you buy, 
if you don't buy a brand new home, if you buy a resale home, you tend you're going to be buying what 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 was popular, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So you 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 might be buying, you know, a smaller home because of that cuz cuz they just seem to keep building bigger and bigger houses. So so staying in the the second-hand market all is is one way of of staying off the bandwagon. True, and I guess that would extend to kind of consumer purchases as as well. Purchasing the the not latest iPhone, going to thrift stores, things like that, will will set you behind, and and offer you maybe and probably reduced price tag. And the one thing it requires is a lot of self confidence to 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 stay off the bandwagon. You have to really believe in in your plan and what you're doing. True, and that that leads us back to kind of our our message of that we like to propagate here of, of really. No setting financial goals and sticking to them. So the final cognitive bias here is a status quo bias, and it is a tendency to favor decisions that don't change your life or your perspective very much. Yeah, so status quo can be a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, a lot of times, people make changes for the sake of change, and it costs you money. And like I know people that will move, like they'll literally sell their house and move to a, another part of town and buy a similar size house in in a different neighborhood. And nothing's really changed other than they just parted with a whole bunch of money to move and in, in real estate commission, legal fees and moving costs uh, just just to shake it up. To me, that, that's a that's where status quo is your friend. But sometimes status quo, like, I mean, it, it, car insurance or cell phone plans, it, if you don't shop around uh, and, and stay current on those things, you, you these, uh, particularly with, uh, you know, cable providers or internet providers there's always deals out there but if you just keep paying your your bill and, and staying with your existing plan a lot of times you're paying a premium like you're paying a a huge premium so and sometimes it, and it i think it's personality driven so status quo is kind of for the people of a of a low-key personality the kind of maybe an introverted and they they just like to keep things even you know all the time they don't like peaks and valleys and those people, the status quo is probably their enemy. And then there's the movers and shakers who always want something new in their life. And and those people, status quo is your your friend. You 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 should be you know thinking status quo more often than not. And then and then there's aspects of your life like know your weakness. So everyone who listens to this knows I have a weakness for consumer electronics, and I I know that I gotta think status quo more often than not. You know that this phone is working for me. Why would I change it? Right. I need to think that way. And there's other people who are still have a flip phone and they say this phone is working for me. Why would I change it? Well, maybe you should change it because, you know, cell phone technology has come a long way since the flip phone. So I think it's for the same exact product, two different people, the status quo can be your friend or your enemy. And I think this cognitive bias takes a lot of cog- um, interpersonal interpersonal reflection because one of the examples Kristen throws out here um, in the article is that um, taking a look and examining your monthly spending. So, I mean, at the same time, you are comfortable with with everything that you, you spend on eating out with your groceries, um, all the coffees maybe get out. But I think it's important to, as well with this point, to really look look and examine and maybe shake things up and, and make those kind of changes to, to better off your budget and, and where your income is going. So that brings us to the end of this article on the cognitive biases that lead to bad money decisions. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to hear from you, our listeners, if 
there's any of these cognitive biases you've, you you realize that you fall victim to easily or any examples that have happened um, in, in relation to these cognitive, cognitive biases, even in, um, in, in retrospection. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us today as we talk about the cognitive biases that lead to bad money decisions. We'll see you right back here next week. Until then, keep it simple.